uh, last week we we stopped with Peter's denial uh, of Jesus, and I'm going to pick up at verse 28 of chapter 18. I don't know, maybe I forgot to mention the chapter. We're in John chapter 18, and we're going to start with verse 28. So what happened, again, last week we saw Jesus examined by Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who's the chief priest. And as Craig said, that what do they call it, like a kangaroo court? I mean, they, they knew that they were going to find him guilty. Like, so they... they um, they accuse him of blasphemy. That's not actually explicitly stated in John's Gospel, but you can fit in the other synoptics. And now, it's really early in the morning, and they're going to take Jesus to Pilate. And that's where we're at in verse 28. Uh, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, sometimes called the themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, that's interesting. They couldn't enter his headquarters because that would defile them. And we find other similar passages in the Bible, like in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. One of the things that he says upon entering the house is, you know that as a Jew, I'm really not supposed to do this, Uh, associate this closely with Gentiles. But we're not really told exactly why that would constitute ritual impurity. The best guess is it probably has something to do with the kosher food laws. Gentiles could not be relied upon to eat the food that Jews were supposed to eat, and they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so they wanted to just make sure all their bases were covered. But here we find an incredibly ironic passage, all right, because here the, uh, the, chief, the chief priests and the Jewish authorities, they're about to hand over a man who's blameless and innocent to be killed, all right? They've, uh, they have no good evidence against him, and they know it. And they're handing over to Pilate to kill him, but God bless them, they're not going to be ritually impure while they do it. This is the absurdities you're going to be reduced to when you substitute religion for God. And so this is a fulfillment of the words of Jesus. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. All right, so verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, Pilate knew that something was up because in John's Gospel, we're told that a Roman cohort accompanied the temple police when they were on their way to arrest Jesus. So Pilate has some idea of something going on. But he was probably kind of hoping that they would have just taken care of it. Well, now they've brought him to headquarters, and guess what? The charge of blasphemy is not going to cut any ice with Pilate. They have to have some kind of official charge. And it's pretty obvious they don't have a good one when they say, well, look, uh, if he wasn't doing anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Pilate is going to tell them that's not quite good enough. Um, Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You guys got nothing, so just take him away and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, once again, in two places in 
the Gospel of John. I think it's chapter 8 and chapter 10. We have heard about attempts on Jesus' life. There are two times where they wanted to stone him to death, and now they're appearing before Pilate, and they're saying, well, it's against the law for us to kill anybody, so what's going on here? And again, I think the best answer is they've gotten to the point to where they don't just want Jesus dead. They want him crucified. They want him hanging on a Roman cross for all the world to see this man dying a dishonorable, shameful, ignominious death and cursed by God because he's hanging on a tree. They want, they want him to go all the way and just shut this, snuff this movement out completely. And again, the irony is they think that this is going to be to Jesus' shame and it's going to be to his glory. Because as he said in John chapter 12, when he was lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So the moral of the story is don't try to thwart God's plans because you end up looking stupid. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had uh, spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That word is in John chapter 12. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is the question that Pilate starts with in every one of the gospel accounts. Now, John's gospel is unique because we have Pilate examining Jesus in more detail in John's gospel. But I think in all the gospels, he starts with that question. And this hints at the charge that they're bringing against him. Like I said, blasphemy is not going to cut it. But politically, if he is making himself out to be a king, an independent authority in Roman territory, well, then now that's a different matter. And so Pilate's going to question him. And it's interesting, as the interview goes on, though, the examination, it seems more and more like Pilate's the one that's really on trial here. And we'll, we'll see that as we progress through this. But with Pilate and the crowds, we see represented two different responses to Jesus that both end in disaster. All right, we have Caiaphas and the Jewish authorities who are saying, kill him, crucify him. Pilate is going to try to remain neutral. That's going to be his response to Jesus. He's going to try to remain neutral, but it doesn't work. And guess what? It still doesn't work. Now, Pilate is actually portrayed in a somewhat, I understand, a somewhat favorable light in the Gospels as compared to other ancient sources. Like I've been told, if you read Josephus and Philo, they just make Pilate out to be completely and utterly irredeemable. Just a completely heartless person. The Gospels are somewhat more favorable, but they don't portray him as a saint. And there's one, there's one passage in particular that I want to go to. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 1, where we see some of the things that Pilate would do that are recorded in the Gospels that are clearly wrong. In Luke, chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So apparently they were on their way to worship and he had them all killed. Verse 2, and he answered them, this is Jesus, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. 
But uh, I usually preach pretty short anyway, so I think it'll all work out in the end. But I, I've noticed that, that there's, a, there's kind of a push today by some Christians that they want to lump Jesus into the social justice warrior camp. And if there's one passage in Scripture that's strong... Now, by the way, did Jesus care about social justice? Absolutely he did. All right? That's why he was healing the sick and casting out devils and preaching the good news to the poor. And that's why the Christians have established hospitals and established schools and why Christianity played a huge role in abolishing slavery. Right? So, yeah... Do they care about social justice? But social justice today, as far as I can tell, means being hypersensitive, hypercritical, self-righteous, and unmerciful. And that's not what Jesus was like. And young people, if you're listening to this, please pay attention. Because if there was any place in the gospel for Jesus to go ballistic, it would have been right here. Why? He doesn't make a sweeping denunciation of Rome. He doesn't incite any riots. He doesn't organize any protests. He's got nothing to say about it. This was one of the most oppressive, oppressive regimes the world had ever seen. And they had just mercilessly killed people on their way to worship. And what does Jesus say in response? They want his comment. He says, this is what I'm going to say. First of all, don't think they were the worst sinners. Tragedy doesn't play favorites. So get that out of your mind. Secondly, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. We've got people that will denounce entire nations right now, but they won't look in the mirror. And there is no way we are ever going to solve the social problems until we deal with the personal problem of sin. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You've got to take the beam out of your own eye first. All right, so there's my, there's my tangent. Let's come back to... The text, John chapter 18. Are you the king of the Jews? There's the accusation. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So... Interestingly enough, now Jesus sounds like he's answering the first question that Pilate asked when he said, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom. Now, if you've got a kingdom, what does that make you? And again, here in John's gospel, the kingdom of God is not explicitly preached as much as in the synoptics. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom of God has a very strong emphasis in those Gospels from the beginning. In John's Gospel, it's not quite so much, but here the kingdom is coming into full play. Jesus has a kingdom, but his kingdom is not of, the, of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Now, we know that Peter did kind of try to put up a little bit of a fight, during Jesus' arrest, he chops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. But Jesus tells him, Peter, no, put your sword away. And that's the same thing saying, my kingdom is not of this world. This is not how it works. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born 
And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Pilate's being put to the test. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is he going to do? He responds with those famous words, what is truth? Now, interestingly enough, in the Bible, we're told in several places, we're given several reasons for why Jesus came. Um, in in uh, John chapter 6, verse 38, he has come to do the will of his Father. In 1 Timothy 1, chapter 15, he has come to save sinners. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he's come to destroy the works of the devil. And, and you find other examples like this. You comb through the scriptures. But here we come to another reason. He says, I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, the purposes of what I'd like to, to say next, I'm going to make a, a distinction here um, between what I'm going to call truth with a, with a capital T and truth with a lowercase t. And I'm not, pre- this is sort of, I'm admitting this is kind of artificial. I'm just doing it for clarity's sake. Like, if you press the distinction too far, I don't think it would work. But... I'm going to say that truth with a lowercase t is the kind of truth that you could pick up in an encyclopedia. Now, I know we don't use encyclopedias anymore, right? So I would have to say truth with a lowercase t is what Siri tells you or Alexa, right? If you just want information, you ask Siri and she spits out the information. And in theory, a hardened criminal would be able to pick up on that information just as well as a law-abiding citizen. All right, fair enough. But when we're talking about truth with a capital T now, all right, truth with a capital T is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of, not about God, but the knowledge of God, the truth of who God is, the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And in order to pursue the truth, see, if you're going to bear witness to the truth, which we are called to do as well, you've got to have two things. You've got to, one, know what that truth is, and two, you've got to be able to communicate it. And if we want to seek truth with a capital T, the scriptures tell us information is not enough. Now, it includes, it does include information, but you've got to seek it with your mind, with your heart, with your will. The whole person has to be involved. Scripture is very clear on this point. It says that spiritual deficiencies make us unfruitful in knowledge. And let me give you uh, just a couple of examples of where you find this in Scripture. First, I want to go to 2 Timothy. Sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is, I'm going to read verses 5 through 8. Peter writes to these Christians, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, here's what he said in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they what? They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that implies the converse. If you're not pursuing these things like godliness and steadfastness and so on and so forth, that you are going to be ineffective and unfruitful in what? Truth with a capital T. 
And then you go to uh, 1 John. I want to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The apostle writes, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, you don't need to despair, by the way, when you read these words to think that, oh, I, my goodness, we have to be perfect before we can know who God is. Is that what John is saying? No, because John says in chapter 1, look, if you, if you sin, or he actually says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So this implies that John knows the people that he's writing to are not perfect. But what he does clearly mean is if you, are, if you are willfully living in deliberate disobedience, you can't make any claim to really know who Jesus is, to know truth with a capital T. And, and one thing that we want to guard against very carefully as Christians, we want to seek this truth, right? We've got to have humility. Um, the Bible says that God, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and there's one thing that will cause you to stumble, it's being presumptuous. And we saw the perfect example of what I'm talking about last week when Craig was talking about Peter's deny Jesus. Because Peter said, I will never fall away. He's, he's claiming that he knows something about himself saying, I know that I will never fall away. Everybody else might forsake you, but I will go to prison with you. I will go with you to death. And he was being presumptuous. And Jesus pointed it out to him. On the other hand, get what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. I'm, getting, I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, the apostle writes, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now listen to what he writes, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul's admitting I'm not perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Notice the lack of presumptuous here. Notice the note of humility. I'm not, I know I'm not perfect yet. I know I haven't made it my own yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that's fascinating when Paul says, forgetting what's behind me. The Apostle Paul had some impressive things he could have pointed to in his past, like Jesus being revealed to him on the road to Damascus. He, but he's not placing any confidence in that. The Apostle Paul planted churches, but he's saying, I'm not, I'm not placing any confidence in that. 
He, he, God performed miracles through the Apostle Paul. He's not placing any confidence in that. He's saying, I'm forgetting what lies behind me. What I'm doing is I'm pressing forward towards Jesus. You see, and that's, that's, this is so, it's so important that we get this. If you're focused on Jesus, you'll, you'll have assurance. Assurance that you know the truth, assurance that you belong to him. But if you're not focused on Jesus, if you're focused just on having assurance and not pursuing Jesus you're going to have presumption. And here we have the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I'm just daily, I'm daily relying on Jesus. I'm just daily pursuing Him, trusting in Him. Pursuing truth with a capital T. And we need to remember that when the disciples came to Jesus, was their theology Perfect. Uh, far, far from it. I mean, um, now, by the way, I need to say this before I go on because I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, don't mistake me as thinking that I'm saying sound doctrine isn't that important. Sound doctrine is important. Um, what I'm talking about is how to pursue sound doctrine, okay? Like when I hear people, because sometimes I, I hear people complain against doctrine is, oh, you know, this is just Christians fighting, and none of that matters. What matters is, is treating each other like we want to be treated. Okay, I, I get that. And it's true that when we treat each other like garbage, we really do hurt the witness of the gospel. All of that is true. But the second you try to divorce love from sound doctrine, you start, you, well, not the second you do it, but eventually you're going to end up looking foolish. All right? So, for example, say, well, here's the most important thing, everybody. I don't care about all that theology. I just want to love God and love my neighbor. Congratulations, you just taught a doctrine. <laughs> That's doctrine. Say that the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor is a teaching. You are offering your belief. Now, guess what? You want to love God. Who is God? <laughs> what is God like? What does God love? What does God hate? Guess what you're doing now? Theology. You're not going to be able to escape it. But the way that we pursue it can't just be with our heads. That's the point I'm, I'm slowly bringing this to. If we go back to John chapter 1, for example, and we look at the call of Jesus, in chapter 30, I'm sorry, chapter 35 of John chapter 1, the next day John was standing with two of his, two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The, the two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. So all they had was just a little bit to go on there. They had, they had a, a devout man of God saying, This guy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how do the disciples respond? They start to follow Jesus. Okay. And he looked at, uh, or sorry, verse 3, 8, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. Like I say, I had a lot to learn at this point. You read the other Gospels. You read about all the blunders the disciples made. They had a lot to learn. So what, they didn't have theology. Their doctrine wasn't perfect, but they were unified. Now, why, why were they unified? Because they were all following the same person. That was the unifying factor. They were all following Jesus. 
And Jesus took care of their doctrine. Now, I, I've, I came across a story uh, recently in a, in a book by E. Stanley Jones. It's actually a devotional book called Victorious Living, but it illustrates perfectly the kind of thing I'm, I'm trying to talk about here. Um, this is a conversation he had with a Chinese engineer. All right. He writes, a Chinese, a Chinese engineer sat down with me, and this is, of course, this is many years ago, and abruptly said, what are you going to do with me? I am a man without any religion. The old is dead, and I haven't anything new to take its place. In America, no church would take me, for I cannot believe in the divinity of Christ. All right. Then Jones writes, I could I almost see him inwardly stiffen to meet my arguments to prove Christ divine. And so he, he understands at this point, if he just whips out a Bible. So I said, there's two things you need to do to bear witness to the truth. Right? One is you've got to have the truth. The second is you need to know how to communicate that. And Jones knows at this point, if he just whips out a Bible and starts saying, well, this text proves it, and this text proves it, and this text proves it, the guy's going to shut down completely. Okay? So, so what does he do? Does he say, okay, well, bye. No. He said, um, it's none. Instead, I asked, what do you believe? How far along are you? So he's saying, okay, you don't believe in the divinity of Christ. Fine, what, what, what do you believe? And here's what the guy responds. Well, he said, I believe that Christ was the best of men. Jones responds, then let us begin where you can. That, that, that is important, church. When, when you look at the way that Jesus witnesses to people in the Gospels, the way that he witnesses to the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4 is not the same way he witnesses to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, and it's not the same way that he witnesses to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus treats people as individuals. It's not just some canned method that he just, he just pulls, he just whips out whenever he wants to evangelize. Let's begin where you can. He's having, another way to put it is, in the book of James, we're told to have mercy on those who doubt. And by the way, very, I'm very glad of my own experience. I was allowed to doubt and ask questions because my coming to Christ was gradual. For a lot of people, it's more, it seems like it's more like flipping on a light switch. For me, it was more like a dimmer. And I'm so thankful I had people who were merciful to me and allowed me to ask the tough, annoying questions that a lot of people didn't want to put up with. But I wanted to hear some rational answers, and I found folks that were willing to give them to me. Praise God. All right? Now, this is not the same thing, by the way, as being uh, what's sometimes called seeker-friendly. I kind of think seeker-friendly is sometimes gospel-unfriendly. Um, I, I like the way that Jimmy, uh, I think his name is Jimmy Seibert. He has, a, he has a really big church in Waco, Texas, and apparently they're just, they're just turning that city upside down, or at least the district that he's in. And I saw an interview with him, and somebody said, well, what do you do on Sunday mornings, Jimmy? He says, here's what I do. I preach to the disciples and let the crowds watch. So in other words, he's feeding sheep, and the crowds, he doesn't put obstacles in their way. He, he lets them watch. Okay. So he said, 
if Jones talking to this Chinese engineer, if he is the best of men, then he is your ideal. Are you prepared to act according to that ideal, to cut out of your life everything that Christ would not approve? Now, this is, this is what repentance means, by the way. That old gospel word, re- repentance. And church, I, I know repentance is kind of an uncomfortable topic, but it, it, part of what it means to follow Jesus, all right? And it's all over the New Testament. And I'm, I'm going to begin here and just look at a, a handful of passages to prove my point. <laughs> that this is something I did get from reading the Bible. Um, come with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And bear with me, please, because I want to look, look at a few, a few passages here that highlight this. Um, Mark, chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. Now, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right out of the gate, his first message was repent and believe the gospel. You go to the last chapter of Luke's gospel. So that's the beginning of his ministry. Here's the end of his ministry according to Luke. Luke chapter 24. Verse 45, then he opened, his, uh, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He said there are two pillars of the message I want you to preach. Those pillars are repentance, forgiveness. You can go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is addressing the Areopagus in Athens. And at verse 30, he writes, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he strongly suggests that you might want to think about all people everywhere to repent. What's really written there is he commands... Who? All people everywhere. Now, to be fair, in context, he's talking about idolatry in in, in, uh, Acts chapter 17. But it's been argued that all sin is a kind of idolatry. All sin is a putting of our will above God's will. And I think that this command, you know, holds true, still holds true for everybody. Now I'm going to look at one more in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Now what's fascinating about this verse is he's talking maturity, right? The author of Hebrews thinks the Hebrew church ought to be more mature than they are. And why that's important? Repentance from dead works and faith towards God is not considered something that just mature Christians do. He's saying this is the basics. This is where you start, okay? It's not just something that I get to as soon as I reach some maturity. Now, of course, repentance is a lifelong, it's a lifelong endeavor, church. The Holy Spirit's always going to be showing you stuff that you need to get right. Uh, So you're never just going to be done with it. But it's very important that we understand that this is part of what it... Because remember what I was saying, that if you want to have sound doctrine, you've got to follow Jesus. 
And repentance is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Okay? So he says, to cut out of your life everything that Christ would not approve. The Chinese engineer answers. He was startled and said, but that is not easy. Yeah, you got that right. It's impossible. But here's what Jones replies. I never said the way of Christ is easy. Are you prepared to let go everything he will not approve? Uh, not approve? Now, Jones knows this guy doesn't have the power in his own strength to repent of everything. But what he's saying is, but are you willing? Are you prepared to let it go? That's, that's what he wants. Are you, in other words, are you serious about this or not? If I am honest, I must, he quietly replied, and I will. Jones says then, whoever Christ turns out to be, man or more than man, wouldn't you be stronger and better if he were living with you, in you, all the time? Now, this is what I call being wise as serpents and gentle as doves, because what's he doing right now? He's introducing the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. When he's using this language, hey, wouldn't it be easier if Jesus was in you? giving you the strength to do it. It's very, very smart. Of course, I would be different. Then will you let him into your life? I don't know how. He says, okay, then pray this prayer after me sentence by sentence. He did. And then he says, this is different, he says, we arose. For they always told me I had to believe first. Now at least, here is something for me to begin on. Okay? We are not church. We are not pointing people to a system. Even our own system. We are pointing people to a person. That's the point. It's like, hey, I know a guy. I know a guy who does the saving thing. Would you like to meet him? And then guess what? When people get serious about that, Jesus irons out their doctrine. Because look at the last paragraph here of the story. The next day he came again, his face radiant. I didn't know a man could be as happy as I have been today. All my questions and doubts as to who Christ is have gone. Jesus took care of it. He's good, church. He's that good. Stanley couldn't, East Stanley Jones couldn't do it, but he knew a guy who could do it. And moreover, this is the Chinese engineer, I have been talking to my wife, and she wants it too. Christ had verified himself. He does whenever we give him the chance. Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus is the truth, the way and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And I think we could do a little bit better sometimes of directing people directly to him and saying, okay, you know, you've got this reservation about Christianity, you've got that reservation, you've got this problem, you've got that objection, but are you willing? Are you willing to do at least this much? Are you willing to call upon his name? And, say, and just say, Jesus, I am here. I am open to hearing from you. Reveal to me who you are. Are you willing to just start there? Because I believe if people will just sincerely pray that prayer, God will answer it. 
We want to bear witness to the truth. We've got to have the truth. If we want to bear witness to the truth, we've got to be able to communicate it. And we've got to remember who it's all about. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Merciful Father in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit would right now just stir our minds and our hearts. If there's anyone here, Lord, that's struggling in any way, oh Lord, soften their hearts and draw them to yourself right now. Encourage us, comfort us, and bless us. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to come directly to you. And so we come directly to you now, Lord Jesus, and we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the word of truth. We thank you that you were lifted up for our sins. We praise you, Lord, for the abundant blessings you've given us here in this place. And we pray that we would walk in gratitude towards you with the highways of Zion in our heart, Lord. This day, that you would touch every individual here as only you can. And we pray that they would put their trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.